Testing one, two, three, four, five. Okay, you sound great. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunselman. The 21st century has brought a lot of ups and downs for the Democratic Party. In 2006. And good morning to you. It is a new day in America. The people have spoken. A seismic shift in the House of Representatives of the United States as the Democrats take control. 2008. Barack Obama is projected to be the next president of the United States of America. 2010 didn't quite go to plan for the Democrats. They needed 39 seats before the end of the night. The projection now is that Fox, from Fox News, that the Republicans will indeed regain control of the United States House of Representatives. And that's because it really does seem to be not only a wave election, but a tidal wave election. 2012 retained the White House. 2014 lost the majority in the Senate. The Republican Party has swept control of Congress. And they did it. 2016. Some big news here, Megan. Huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary Clinton. If the- it's been a rocky road these last few years for the Democrats. And so, since last year, after two bad election cycles for the Democrats, many people were left asking... Yeah, who's the Democratic Party in 2016? And so this episode will not only take on that question, but will push it a bit further. Who will the Democratic Party be going forward? Is there a Democratic Party going forward? And um, by the way, before we start, do you want to introduce me or anything like that? Well, yes, we do. That's Thomas Frank. Yeah, I'm Thomas Frank, the author of Listen Liberal. The Democratic Party is is now so many different groups, you know, such a enormous constellation of interest groups that in some ways the interests completely contradict one another. For example, there's a serious um, peace uh, element in the Democratic Party, as we all know from the Barack Obama presidency. At the same time, at the Democratic Convention in Philadelphia, there was also some serious outreach to the hawk community. You know, they had this Marine Corps general came out and gave a very martial sort of speech. And uh, it was shocking to the peace people when this happened. Um, you have uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And then you have, at the same time, the Wall Street guys up in the skyboxes. You have organized labor. They had their uh, their night, their their twenty minutes or whatever on the first day, and then you have Uber. Everybody was supposed to. The delegates were all supposed to take Ubers back and forth to the convention. So the Democratic Party is spread really thin, and especially this year. If that's the complicated mixture that make up the Democrats now, how have they changed? Like in the last thirty, forty years. Well, when um, in the. Uh, Say in the 1970s and before, the Democratic Party was very closely identified with organized labor. You know, it was it was the 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 um, you know they were well very closely aligned. But that's not that's not saying it right. I mean, their fortunes were almost identical, and the Democratic Party understood itself. They would use uh, euphemisms for it, like the middle class. But that's that's what they were. They were party of uh, working people and particularly of, of organized labor. And they had other constituencies then, too, but that was, that was the group that seemed to come first back in those days. 
And today that's not the case. And you, 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 you know, this is, uh, this is what listen liberal is all about. It's the way that the democratic party has found a new constituency group, uh, and, uh, you know, a new, a new, a number one constituency. And that is, um, white collar professionals. And they, uh, I mean, this is not like something that I had to read between the lines to figure out. This is not something I had to be very clever, but they, they, they talk about this. They're very open about it. Um, that is the, you know, that's their, one of their most loyal groups of voters. That's also the group that all of their, or most of their leaders are drawn from. And that's also the group, they have a whole lot of sort of social theory. The Democratic Party um, generates a lot of social theory. And their social theory tends to see the professional class as the kind of mm, winners of history, the great heroes, the last one standing at the end of the history, of the dialectic of history, if you know what I'm talking about. And I think you do. This is the LSC after all. Okay. But far from everyone in the U.S., and even far from everyone who votes Democratic, are in that class of people. What would you say that means for those not included in that class? Well, there's the problem is that, uh, you know, obviously the Democratic Party has lots of people who aren't included in that class. There's lots of poor people who vote for Democrats, lots of working class people, um, lots of people who aren't professionals uh, who vote for Democrats. What is uh, unfortunately for them... The interests of professionals tend to take precedence, and you know when when there's whenever there's a conflict, this one it almost always seems to come first. Um, and uh, what does that mean for for the other groups? Well, I mean it sucks. There was a. Am I allowed to say that here? Yeah. Okay. So the in back in the Clinton days. Uh, Clinton had his kind of his very famous philosophy of triangulation, you know, his sort of strategy for how he would um, first campaign for the presidency and then how he would um, uh, conduct himself as president, where he was always reaching out to the right and trying to strike uh, deals with, uh, with with the Republicans and with the conservatives. And when he would do this, they had this saying. And if you go back and do like Lexus Nexus searches in the 1990s, you'll come across this saying from time to time. They have have nowhere else to go. So he would say this about organized labor when he's doing NAFTA. And organized labor is like, don't do NAFTA. You know, they were going to, they put everything into stopping this. And he went right over them with a steamroller. And he did this. This is a Republican treaty. You know, the Republicans had negotiated it, but they couldn't get it through Congress. It took Clinton to do that. And when he did that, this is one of the things that you saw in the, um, in the press all the time. You know, he's doing this to them because they've got nowhere else to go. You know, what are they going to do? Um, vote for the Republicans? The Republicans are free traders too. You know, they're not, we know they're not going to go to the Republicans, so he can treat them however he wants. Now, this is highly ironic because you think about what's happened this year with Trump. I mean, this is this is the sort of I don't want to say the 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 genius of Trump because I don't I don't want to compliment the man in that way, but there is something going on with his movement and it's just that they've found somewhere else to go. Uh with his, you know, the the Republican party turning against NAFTA, turning against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. This is you know, this is new and this is uh this has been a shock to the system. Would you say the Democratic Party is still the party of the people? Well, that's a uh, that is a phrase that goes back to the era of Andrew Jackson, and you know it was always it was always true in a kind of uh, rough and ready sense that this was the more disorganized of the two parties. You know, this is the was uh, you know this party had all kinds of of 
went on in the Democratic Party. You had urban machines, you had um, you know hill folk, you had you know the, the the log cabin crap, you had frontier people, you had William Jennings Bryan, and you had slave owners. I mean, you had all of it. You know, and so it was. They they thought of themselves this way um, from the beginning. But there's there's some very important um, differences. Uh, and by the way, I think that's a, that's a label that they that they still cling to and that they use from time to time, um, you know, and that's how they understand themselves. And they think of the Republicans as the party of the you know high society and um, the the very wealthy and the people with good manners. And that's certainly the, what what I thought when I was growing up in Kansas City as a kid that the Republicans were the party of responsible business interests and the Democrats were this kind of. Um, I mean, this was a stereotype, right? Back in the in the sixties and seventies, that that's the Republicans were these you know responsible, clean cut, you know, uh, and then the Democrats, there was something more, uh, lowly and earthy about them. That was the stereotype, uh, that has changed too. And I just want to point out two. I mean, of course, whenever you have a label that, that broad and that sweeping, but I want to point out two interesting things. One is that the Democrats have become the party of wall street, which is a shocking reversal, uh, and it began in the Bill Clinton years when he, um, you know, reached out to Wall Street. He was deregulating, uh, deregulated the banking system in America, and it it hit a kind of um, climax in '08 when Barack Obama was running for president and took in uh, more campaign contributions from people in investment banking than the Republican candidate, which is the first time that had ever happened. The other thing I want to point out is in this year's, I mean, we think of the Democrats as this really disorganized, you know, um, mess of a party. But this year, they held together and stopped the insurgent challenge of Bernie Sanders. I mean, they circled the wagons. They did everything. The, the insiders in the party, the uh, elected officials in the party did everything in their power to stop the insurgency. And the Republicans completely fell apart and let this just total outsider take over their party apparatus. You know, and that's that never happens. I mean, the Republicans are always the ones who are really well organized and they come together and they, you know, uh, you know, well oiled machine. Right. Not this year. So, it, I mean, all of these things are are are, are coming apart. So let's go back to the economic position, and even more specifically, their positions on Wall Street and the financial industry. These positions have changed drastically over the years. Has the expansion of campaign finance laws and regulations influenced this? Yes, definitely. By the way, we should go back a step, and and for, for your listeners who don't know this, I mean, the Democratic Party was founded by Andrew Jackson basically as an anti-bank party, anti-central bank, and it's... um. Great hero in the 1890s, William Jennings Bryan, was this warrior against Wall Street. And the great hero in the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt, same deal. Roosevelt actually, you know, was able to uh, get elected many times and, and, and take his war against Wall Street to the next level and actually, you know, won these enormous triumphs over them. So for them to switch to, you know, to switch sides in that sort of grand historical narrative is uh, is really extraordinary. Did it happen because of campaign finance? Uh, definitely. I mean, money. I, I live in Washington D.C. and money. Everything. Money runs everything there now. But it's it's a bigger question than just that. Uh, these things are, you know, uh, 
the 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 shift to Wall Street began before money was an important, um, you know, a, a really important uh, uh, element of of politics. And what I mean by that is the early 1970s. This is sort of the dawn of big money in politics. You know, the Nixon years. But the Democrats sat down and um, after the 68 election, which was such a debacle, or they thought was a debacle. It actually it doesn't look that bad in retrospect. But they thought at the time, this is you know horrible fighting in the streets of Chicago. And our guy didn't win, you know, Hubert Humphrey. And uh, so they, they set up a commission to reform the party, to reform the nominating process uh, and, and along the way to reform the party itself. And there was a uh, – you know, this is when you first start seeing them talking about the professional class and sort of throwing uh, working class people under the bus uh, and – reaching out instead to what they called at the time suburban liberals. Uh, they, it was the McGovern Commission was charged with reforming the party. And um, there was a book of, of sort of political theory. I, uh, there's a, this whole genre of Democratic Party political theory. And I, I describe it in some detail in Listen Liberal. The author was a, a guy called Fred Dutton. He was later a lobbyist for, I believe, Saudi Arabia, but I'm not sure about that. You want to check that. We did check. This is correct. Uh, he wrote a book about you know, sort of explaining what what you know his his theory of politics and where he saw all this going. And the idea was you know th this class of people are uh, are basically better you know better liberals. Uh, the, you know the professional class, especially the young arm of the professional class, the ones who are in college at the moment. This is the late 60s, early 70s, remember? And he was extremely idealistic about young people, as a lot of people were in those days. And uh, this is all – so all of this stuff starts. The big move to the professional class starts well before the modern era of money and politics. I mean, Wall Street itself was a much different kind of industry back in those days. Investment banking wasn't what it is today at all back in those days. And it changed very slowly, but you, you see this theory develop, this theory of the professional class develop, um, you know, different writers chime in, come up with different variations on the theme. And uh, the, the one that I want to draw your attention to is um, uh, a theorist called Richard Florida, who wrote a book called The, uh, what is it, The Rise of the Creative Class. And in his uh, understanding of the creative class and in the way that that was sort of reflected then through the Democratic Party uh, magazines and politicians and their sort of, uh, you know, the way they think about things. Wall Street is a stronghold of the creative class. The people on Wall Street are extremely creative. And then so are the other industries that happen to be big uh, donors, big pharma, Silicon Valley. These are, this is the professional class. When they, they look at these industries, this is all part of a continuum going back to the, uh, to the early 1970s. So the transition began before the era. But look, they knew at the time in the 70s, they were reaching out, they were dumping a group that was, um, less well-off, and they were reaching out to a group that was richer. And they knew they were doing that at the time. But there's another – another. I mean, I've talked too much, guys, and I'm really, really, really sorry. But there's another point to consider here. Organized labor has a lot of money and it had a lot of money back then especially. Organized labor is no slouch when it comes to fundraising and spending on campaigns. But they deliberately chose these other this other group instead, which is kind of interesting. Now, it's worked out for them. Uh, they fundraise – you know. As well as the Republicans do. And by the way, when you talk to Democrats in Washington, they, they, this is, you know, sort of part of the official theory. We have to, they say, we have to raise as much as the Republicans. That's how you play the political game. And you say to them, no, there's other models, you know, there's other models. You could, you know, the, the, like the old Franklin Delano Roosevelt was outraised and outspent by, you know, enormous numbers every single time and he still won. 
William Jennings Bryan was uh, outraised and outspent 20 to 1, and he almost won. You know, it, it happens. You can win with a different model, which is mass mobilization, right? But they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> The, you know, the way you win a presidential campaign is you raise a whole shitload of money and you buy TV commercials with it and you, you know you, you do big data and you know all of this crap and that's they, they don't see any other way they want to compete with the Republicans one to one now there's a a pretty base reason for that you know they want to get paid <laughs> you know they got this whole apparatus everybody wants to get paid so yes money is a huge part of it. The Democratic candidate who has most recently bucked this trend of moving towards white-collar classes and Wall Street is Bernie Sanders. What do you think of Bernie and his campaign and his critique of Wall Street? I thought the Bernie Sanders campaign was really inspiring. Uh, I, I mean, come on. you know. Oh, here's something you can link to. I did an interview with Bernie Sanders back in 2014 huh. before he uh, declared, you know, before the, he had started his campaign. We knew – I mean, everybody knew he was going to do it. He had been talking about it. He was making hints in that, in that way. And so we talked about this at, at great length, I should add. It was a very long interview. Uh, really interesting guy. Uh, and I was – I thought that was very inspiring that he did find another model. And that was – I mean, that's – uh, that is a breakthrough thing that he showed that there is this other way to run for the presidency, and he got much farther than anybody expected. You know, when I did that interview with him, he was considered a marginal figure. This is a Dennis Kucinich kind of figure, um, and he, you know, he was not well known. He's from Vermont. He has a accent that is difficult for a lot of Americans to understand. Uh, <laughs> I find it kind of charming. <laughs> you know, I like his accent. But the, the the man did as well as he did with no uh, corporate or banking or you know finance financial uh, interests behind him. Wow, uh, it is amazing what he did, and I just you know I'm I'm wondering where it goes from here. That's you know the next question. Where does where you know is there another Bernie Sanders four years from now? So we're going to see. But yeah, I was really excited by that. Now going back to the people, the voters themselves, do they see themselves in the same terms that have historically been used to define the American masses? That is to say, do voters define themselves as we the people anymore? Well, I think, the, you know, it's not a uh, – those sort of grandiose terms about we the people and uh, that sort of thing. You just – you don't hear that very often anymore. And when you do hear it, it's often in a really, um, I think, a suspect way. You know, the Republicans talking about the real America, uh, you know, when they're, they're campaigning in some rural area or something like that. They'll often say that, that you know – and uh, I, I strongly reject that understanding of, of that kind of that real America always leaves me and people like me out of it, you know. And uh, so I'm obviously not 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 going to, um, you know, put much faith in that. But it's not a um, it's not a phrase, you know, the idea of a single monolithic unit, you know, unified American people is really not a um, idea that's much in vogue anymore. Let's cross the ocean for a moment. Other comparable developed economies produce labor parties who are clearly established to defend the working classes. But this isn't so in the U.S. Why didn't we produce a party that was primarily focused on workers' rights? We did, but it, it died. That was populism, so in the 1890s. But uh, it was specifically about uh, 
farm labor and uh, uh but the, the, they made all of these uh you know in their in their platform if you go back and look at it they also cast themselves as the party of labor and they you know the knights of labor and they were reaching out to these you know union groups and this kind of thing and they had some success with that but and then the the socialists tried a little little well after that but they all failed but the democratic party has been around forever and has you know uh, well, isn't it the oldest political party in the Western world? I think anywhere it's the, the oldest political party. And they have always understood themselves as not the party of working people per se, but of you know, non-aristocratic people. It's not exactly the same thing, but close enough. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm joined now by my co-host, Denise Barron. Hey, Denise. Hi, Sophie. Hey. And the chair of Democrats Abroad UK, Inga Kemtrup. Hi, Inga. Hi. Nice to be here. Thanks for joining us. So let's jump right into it. Thomas Frank highlighted some of the decisions or changes in the Democratic Party that have led us up to this point. But let's take a look at the current state of play. What would you say are some of the most significant challenges currently facing the Democratic Party? So... We're at an interesting point. We've just had an election, and it's not the first one over the last 20 years where we've lost, rather to our surprise. Um, Hillary Clinton won 3 million votes, but she lost the Electoral College, and here we are with Trump as president. We faced this also in 2000 when the Supreme Court decided to stop counting in Florida and ended up giving um, Bush the presidency over Al Gore. So we've been through this. And what it tends to mean is that there's a regrouping, there's a rethinking of who we are and what happened. At the same time, because of the person who became president, there's incredible resistance going on, exemplified day after the election when um, all these millions of women march, not just in Washington, but around the world here in London and mm -hmm. elsewhere. So the resistance is strong, but I think that uh, the most significant challenge that the Democratic Party faces right now is to redefine itself. It's not just regrouping and reassessing what happened. It's not just resisting the decisions that are being made, although God knows we need a lot of that. But it's also deciding what is the vision of the Democratic Party. There are people who in America who thought they had a future, thought their future would be like their parents, and they didn't think it was there. We're in a very questioning period. It's something that um, a lot of us are grappling with right now, but our challenge is to redefine and reshape um, a vision. Now, if you spend all your time just resisting, which I think is what the Republicans did a lot during the eight years of Obama. They just resisted everything he right, did. Right, starting with the Tea Party and everything. Exactly. Like, you know, first of all, we question your legitimacy. Um, second of all, we um, have our doubts about everything you're doing. And so they define themselves in opposition. And look at them now. They are, really are in disarray. It's, it's kind of like the difference in between governing mm, and campaigning, exactly. really. And basically, when you're in the minority, you can just be campaigning all the time. You can yes. just be talking in sound bites and be in opposition, which I think is actually one of the challenges that the Democratic Party faces right now is not falling into the trap of exactly what you're saying, because there is this very strong resistance. There is like a very strong roar of progressivism in the U.S. right mm. now. I think a lot of people, including including Thomas Frank, would say that there uh, that's a little bit different than the Democratic Party itself. Yeah. That there's the people are really leading, and especially young people who don't necessarily define themselves as Democrats are really leading the resistance. Well, the Democratic Party is almost trying to 
chase the chase the resistance to get to the front of it to lead it you know there are some leaders within the party who are who are doing a great job of it but there is there's a little bit of a of a question there of like is this american progressivism or is it the democratic party that's really pushing this resistance yeah well maybe that's a question for you Inga. do you think there is a difference between liberals and democrats and progressives are we now all part of the same party? I mean, we're in this great period of flux, so I find it um, that labels are only of limited value, frankly. I'm not really persuaded um, that it's that neat. I think um, Thomas Frank sees that as pretty neat, and, and his definition, that's uh, white-collar professionals as well that he has it in for, and I think it's a little more complex. What, I'm, what I see at the DNC level is they're trying to think about ways of bringing new voices to the table, bringing in new candidates, um, taking from those strands of resistance, if we want to call them that, and mm -hmm. seeing how they can happen. At the same time, there are new candidates sort of coming up without too much encouragement necessarily. Uh, for example, Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Who, yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I've met the man, and I just mispronounced his name. With, with my surname, there's really no excuse. But um, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and he's really innovative, mm -hmm. and he's being cited as a future leader. And to get a little attention, he did run for um, the leadership of the DNC. So that's really exciting, and people saw him there. Um, there's Kamala Harris, who's a breath of fresh air, the senator from California, who sits there and defines people. And these are people who we've known about, so fine. But there's also lots of other voices coming up, and I think the DNC is trying to find them. It's a period of flux. Now, I think that's exciting. A lot of people could see that as, um, you know, destabilizing. Why don't you have a vision? Well, why don't we take the time to figure out what it is? Because by the time we come to the midterms, we're going to have a better sense of what to do with that, defining a positive vision, understanding real challenges as opposed to, you know, um, imaginary things for which constructing a see-through wall at the uh, Mexican border will apparently solve everything. Right. So it's really funny that you mentioned both of those people. In thinking about uh, the interview and, and this conversation, I was thinking about some of the up-and-coming leaders of the Democratic Party who um, are well-respected and who I would say speak in a way uh, that sort of cuts through the white noise of the political talking points and messaging. And two out of the six people that I mentioned, you've already that I wrote down, you've already mentioned. So Pete Buttigieg, I'm actually I'm lucky enough to have voted for Pete. Oh, his, fantastic! Yeah, so I lived in South Bend <laughs> when he ran for mayor the first time. And then, I mean, Kamala Harris is amazing. But then there's also people like Seth Moulton, who's mm -hmm. um, a congressman from Massachusetts. You have uh, Kristen Sinema, congresswoman from Arizona. Um, Andrew Gillum is a guy who, he's interesting. He's the mayor of Tallahassee, Florida. And he's another of those cool, young, innovative mayors. Mm -hmm. um, really interesting guy. And then also someone who, you know, she got a little bit battered towards the end of her uh, tenure as mayor. But Stephanie Rollins-Blake, the former mayor of, um, of Baltimore, she was a really interesting figure, especially in terms of the, the violence that was going on there towards the end of 2015. So there's, there's a deep bench. I mean, we could go on and on. And Politico and The Hill and all of these news outlets do list after list of up-and-coming Democrats. But... One of the fundamental problems, in my mind, of the Democratic Party right now is that there is this sort of bottleneck to leadership. Mm. Right now, the six people who are in the head of the leadership of the, of the Democrats in the, the minority in the House and the Senate are all over 65 and actually four of them are well over 70 as well. It's not to say that people of any age shouldn't have any sort of position. It's to say that there should be a diversity of voices within leadership. And also the fact is that 
all of these people with the with the exception of Chuck Schumer have been in these positions for years and years and years and years and I mean I've worked on losing campaigns so no offense to people who've worked <laughs> on losing campaigns but after a certain while you you step down and you let other people take the reins who who are going to bring in a different fresh innovative voice I mean that's one thing that I think was actually you know sort of a positive thing coming out of the Debbie Wasserman Schultz controversy and mistakes uh, is that we got a new leader of the DNC we had a great you know discussion and debate in that in that campaign and it produced a bunch of new voices from from that campaign that we wouldn't have had otherwise that doesn't happen unless people step down from leadership and let other people take and take on those roles yeah, I agree. I think it's I think it's a real challenge to um, bring in new people. I, I I will say that I've spoken with people who are familiar with or active in the DNC, and there's a strong feeling that they do want to get in new voices. And you have these very distinguished people who've been there a long time, but again, are they in touch with what's happening in the ground? Are they in touch with the the, the trends? Are they in touch with the economic upheaval that's taking place in the country? To a certain degree, yes, but it's time to right. reconsider some of that. I, I, I will say that your concerns, you're, you're not alone in your <laughs> concerns. <laughs> when, I, when I was looking some of these up, I, was, I realized something kind of shocking that I had not, I had, I had no idea this was the case, but basically since the mid-90s, the average age of the Democratic members of Congress have been higher than the average age of the Republican members of Congress. Yeah. And on top of that, both of those averages have been going up. They, they basically increased by 10 years over the last 10 years. So we have, I mean, not to use too much of like a populist term, but like we have a lot of career politicians right now in both houses of, of Congress. And, you know, maybe that's being reflected right now in the way things are being done in the Democratic Party. Well, I mean, incumbency, incumbency is a powerful thing, right. yeah. let's face it. And it, it's hard for, um, you know, state uh, parties and states and for the overall party to say, well, you know, should we get rid of this person? There's such an easy reelection so we can keep uh, you know, the numbers we have in the Senate so we can keep the numbers in the House. But this is, I think, the perfect time to start taking some risks about that, to start developing the candidates. And as you say, we do have a developing and deeper bench. So there are people who could, in fact, come up and, and do that. So like you, I'm hopeful that we'll start yeah. getting there. So perhaps do all these perhaps older politicians in the House and the Senate really fit Thomas Frank's description of the Democratic Party as influenced by white-collar professionals, influenced by Wall Street. What do you think of that categorization? Well, part of it is what we were referring to earlier. Um, I think there's a strong move now to say, well, we would like to, instead of things coming from the top down, and that's how traditionally things have been. Certainly, it's something when you think about the Re Republican Party. Traditionally, they were always top-down, on message, united. It was something that the, Re the Democrats could never be because we are this this famous wide tent. <laughs> but um, lately, maybe it's been something where we've had the same kind of tactics. We've assumed that you know, s spending money on television ads, um, sending out emails, doing these tactics will bring people out. And maybe what we really need is more of a, of a bottom-up. It's something that, of course, um, Bernie Sanders addressed, and, and, and he, he, he was extraordinarily successful in, in doing that, although he did not win the nomination. Um, so, yeah, we do have this um, change of mode, I guess I would say, or a sort of a paradigm change in the DNC, but it's slow. I mean, don't expect this is going to change overnight. 
things are starting, I, I would say, because what they realize is in places like uh, Texas and places like Wisconsin and places like, uh, you know, other corners where we lost, there are places where no Democrats have run in years, and that right. is completely ridiculous. And one of the big things um, I'm in favor of, and I think a lot of other Democrats are in favor of, is bringing back the 50-state strategy. Mm. That means you have to do the boring work of figuring out who the local candidates are, who the strongest Democrats are, giving them the experience, giving them the training, and bringing them up. It's time-consuming. It takes a while. That was championed by Howard Dean, who's Indeed. a friend of Democrats of Red, right? Yeah. Indeed. He was here, um, I think, last year, actually. Mm. And we're delighted to see this coming back. So and another thing I kind of want to take issue with in terms of Thomas Frank's characterization of the Democratic Party is that there's a difference between the people who are listed on the financial disclosure forms of being the biggest donors of the Democratic Party, and then the people who are kept in mind in terms of policy priorities. Mm. So yes, of course, the white-collar professional has become the most common donor to the Democratic Party, because they're the ones who have the disposable income to be able to do that. But when you look at what the Democrats are talking about right now, in term, and the things that they're really fighting for and fighting to protect to the nails, Medicare expansion, it's minimum wage increase, it's equal pay for equal work, and equal pay for equal work would benefit white-collar workers as well as blue-collar workers. So I, I didn't completely agree with him that the, that the Democratic Party has become dominated by this white-collar professional. I think that the donor class across the board in American politics have. But in terms of the policies and the priorities of the Democratic Party, it's still all about the, really about the middle class, the working class, and even the, the poor at the very bottom. So... What about his categorization of doves versus hawks? Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, he was yeah. talking about that at the convention. There was like a literal split on the party floor. Right. What do you think of that? Well, it's difficult to say. I think there are some politicians, including Seth Moulton, who right. was here, uh, also visiting us recently. And I think he's much more on the hawkish side. Yeah, because he's, he, he's a mili military vet himself. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So there are people who see that spending as a priority. But you're right. There's a very strong peace component. Yeah. yeah. One thing that when when Thomas Frank said that too, in terms of like the hawk and dove distinction, that felt very dated to me. Mm. That that felt like a, a '90s or previous type of distinction. I don't think if you talk to a lot of millennial Democrats or millennial voters that they would have a strong sense of. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm a hawk or dove. I don't. I, I would. I've never thought of myself in in those terms of where I fall. It's almost more of like just want some sanity in that yeah. realm of policy making yeah. right is that is that hawkish or is that dovish i don't know mm. maybe maybe it's a good past. way to wrap up recently i saw this one article and I, I, there's tons of articles about like here's what's wrong with the democratic party and here's here's how the democratic party can start to win again and all these types of things and i've thought all these hot takes have actually been pretty exhausting and not incredibly insightful but there was one that really hit the nail on the head to me at least and it, it's it's by a guy named uh, josh barrow who writes for the business insider and is a contributor to msnbc too as well and the name of it was liberals can win again if they stop being so annoying and fix their hamburger problem hamburger problem was in quotes <laughs> and i that just piqued my interest i was like uh -huh. oh, annoying uh go on <laughs> and and basically what he's saying is that liberalism in the u.s and not necessarily specifically Democrats, but liberalism in the U.S. has become this thing that's just like, you're always feeling bad about something you're doing. 
and you know oh you're eating too much meat and that's contributing to global warming and oh you're driving your car too much you're not biking enough and oh your gender reveal party is actually very sexist and all these things that like it's like every step you take if you're not perfectly you know in line with everything then there's this guilt that's associated with it some of these things are good things for society but i do worry if there is there is this over I don't know, over tumble of liberalism that has gotten to the point where it does alienate a number of people who just are starting to feel bad or feel like they're supposed to feel bad or supposed to feel guilty about a lot of these simple, smaller personal decisions that they're making. And they're missing the big picture of what the Democrats stand for and what the Democrats are trying to do. Well, that was a, a big question. Um, <laughs> I guess I, I have heard that critique from people um, more on the Thomas Frank line, who are focused particularly on economics. And and make no mistake, we are in the middle of a huge economic upheaval. We don't really even know what's under our feet. Mm. And part of that is automation. That factory that was uh, sent out of Michigan, say, and went to Mexico, maybe had 100,000 people. Uh, when it, when Trump, if Trump gets that factory back, it's only going to be employing 10,000. Automation right. is changing everything. It's changing not only uh, semi-skilled and factory line jobs, it's going to be affecting those famous white-collar professionals. This is happening underneath us, and we barely know. Right. Um, another huge strand that no one discusses, really, and we haven't mentioned touched on it yet, is climate change. Mm. That's an existential threat to our very existence. It's an existential threat to how we organize our societies, how we feed ourselves, everything that happens. Are we in, in competition with each other just to get basic things? So, so economic um, change, climate change, and then also... Um, just a test of resilience of our democratic institutions. Can democracy continue as it is? It's being challenged on multiple fronts everywhere. Suppressing votes. There's a lot of people who want to make it harder for people to vote. This is one of our favorite themes here abroad. Um, a lot of people who want to challenge, you know, basic human rights. What is what is the Muslim ban but a challenge of that? So there's those three things. And I appreciate that it can seem that maybe there's a focus on uh, I think it's, it's feeding back into this political correctness idea, and I reject that. I reject that because these three strands feed into everything that happens. Women who are out there marching are not just interested in women's issues in particular. They're aware of what's happening economically. They're aware of what's happening to the climate. So when I hear this critique, it feeds into this idea of political um, correctness. It's a wishy-washy way of ignoring the bigger issues and um, trying to say there's only one focus at a time. It's kind of a divide and conquer effect. So that was a very long way to answer your question. <laughs> I think that just about wraps things up. Thank you, Inga, so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks. Well, that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thank you to both Thomas and Inga. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman. That's me. And also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Next month at The Ballpark... So if you want to look at, you know, sort of anti-Mexican racism, go back to, you can all go back to the 1820s and every decade since then. 
Thanks for listening. 